1950. Five years since the defeat of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. Such were the scars of history's most destructive conflict that the world seemed unrecognizable to the one that existed just a decade earlier. Empires were collapsing, ideologies and nationalism expanding, and in the new world order, powers both old and new wrestled to establish their place on the geopolitical map. And all of this was taking place under the threat of the mushroom cloud of nuclear weapons. Acting is something of a reverie, trying desperately to prevent another global catastrophe was the United Nations. Established in 1942, while the bombs were still falling around the world. Still a relatively new factor in global events, the UN would find its position tested for the first time. When, on the Korean Peninsula, the future of the Korean people, freed from years of Japanese occupation, found themselves acting as a proxy for the struggle of the so-called Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union and their respective allies. Split in two along the 38th parallel, victory for the pro-West South or the Communist North would strike a blow for their respective benefactors in Washington or Moscow, preventing their opponent's expansion of power in the region and possibly influencing events elsewhere in the world in their favor. This is the story of the Korean War, where the superpowers began their fight for global dominance and left behind a land divided and still to this day living under the threat of nuclear weapons. In the final weeks of World War II, with Nazi Germany having been defeated, the Soviet Union declared war on Japan and launched an invasion of Japanese-held territory in Asia. The Soviet Union had signed a neutrality pact with Japan in 1941, which both sides abided by for much of World War II. But at the Tehran and Yalta conferences, Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin agreed to dissolve the agreement and join in the war against Tokyo once Hitler had been dealt with. Stalin amassed an army under the command of Marshal Alexander Vasilevsky, which, after he declared war on the Japanese Empire on August 8, 1945, swept into Japanese-held China, Korea, and the Kuril Islands. Despite numbering over a million men, Japanese forces were all but beaten. And by the end of a comparatively short engagement, 
the Soviets had only lost around 8,000 troops, compared to 80,000 by Japan. With the Soviet invasion coinciding with the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japanese Emperor Hirohito was forced to surrender on August 15th, bringing an end to the Second World War. As well as ending the war, the Japanese surrender also ended 35 years of Japanese occupation of the Korean Peninsula, and there was now a need to organize the withdrawal of Japanese troops to allow Korea to become independent. Soviet troops were already in the north, and U.S. troops were sent to the south to round the defeated Japanese up and ship them home. To avoid troops from either allied nation unintentionally firing on one another, it was decided that the 38th parallel would act as the boundary between them, effectively cutting the peninsula and its people in two. Under Soviet influence, the northern portion quickly adopted the communist style of government, while in the south, the government was led by the pro-West autocrat Syngman Rhee. Rather problematically, both governments believed they were the rightful rulers of the whole of Korea, and with their supporters soon at loggerheads elsewhere around the world, such as the Berlin Crisis of 1948, it was clear that neither Moscow nor Washington were going to permit the other from having total control of Korea. And thus, on August 15, 1948, the pro-West southern portion became the Republic of Korea, or simply South Korea. While in response, Moscow backed the creation of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or North Korea, on September 9th. Yet, despite the creation of these two nations, each with distinct separate identities, there was a feeling that the Korean family had been broken by foreign influence. And both sides continued to push for unification under their own diametrically opposed ideologies and allies. With the communists winning the long-standing civil war over the northern border in China, save for the remaining nationalists on the island of Taiwan, the leaders of the New People's Republic of China adopted a foreign policy that actively promoted communist revolutions elsewhere in the world as a counter to the United States, which it viewed as the new Western imperial power exerting its influence on Asia. Encouraged by this, North Korean leader Kim Il-sung petitioned Stalin to provide military equipment for the North Korean army to invade the South, believing that his people could achieve a quick victory before the U.S. and its allies could respond effectively. Stalin was initially hesitant, but ultimately agreed to supply tanks and aircraft from the Red Army's vast wartime stocks these including large numbers of excellent T-34-85 medium tanks 
and the Ilyushin Il-10 ground attack aircraft. This support afforded Stalin a significant amount of influence over Kim Il-sung, forcing the North Korean leader to postpone his ambitious plan a handful of times, until Stalin thought the North Korean army was ready. In the meantime, communist uprisings began to take place in the south, initially without influence from the north, but then actively encouraged by Kim Il-sung's government. South Korea and U.S. forces managed to largely suppress these uprisings. But Kim Il-sung believed that once the invasion began, it would encourage mass uprisings against the South Korean government, based in Seoul. Finally, in April 1950, Stalin gave Kim Il-sung his blessing to launch the invasion. Crucially, this was only given after the communist Chinese leader, Mao Zedong, pledged to send his own army should the invasion not go as well as hoped, as the Soviet leader made it clear he would not openly be sending Soviet troops, knowing this would likely lead to a third world war between him and the United States, a war which almost certainly would have involved atomic weapons. Given that the war was instigated by North Korea and their Chinese and Soviet backers, it is often forgotten that had events gone slightly differently, it could have begun with South Korea invading the North. In South Korea, Ri, like his northern counterpart, made it clear that he was prepared to unify Korea by force. Mirroring Kim Il-sung's pleas with Stalin, he approached U.S. President Harry Truman for military aid in 1949, promising that with the right American equipment, his army could defeat the KPA within two weeks. Truman's administration was determined to protect the South, but was opposed to any action that might appear provocative to the communists, adopting instead the policy of containing Stalin and his allies. The truth was the U.S. viewed Korea as a strategically insignificant region in the wider arena in combating the communists. And on January 12, 1950, U.S. Secretary of State Dean Acheson made a speech about regional security that effectively ignored the peninsula, leaving some to conclude that the U.S. was prepared to surrender South Korea in order to protect the Philippines or Allied-occupied Japan. U.S. support at this time was therefore largely limited to maintaining a defensive posture, leaving the South Korean army with 98,808 professional soldiers in June 1950, but no significant artillery, tanks, or anti-tank weapons. The South Korean Air Force, meanwhile, numbered just over 1,000 men and 22 aircraft, none of which were fighters while the Navy was non-existent. 
South Korea's waters instead being protected by a small coast guard. Facing them from the north were an initial cadre of 135,000 KPA troops, who, as well as being equipped with T-34-85 tanks and a plethora of other weapons, from rifles to artillery, were highly motivated and led by officers and NCOs who already had a wealth of combat experience fighting with the Chinese communists against Japan and the Chinese nationalists. Additionally, they were supported by over 3,000 Soviet advisors, passing on their vital experience in armored warfare and the use of the T-34, although they themselves were strictly forbidden from participating in the fighting. At dawn, on June 25, 1950, with the blessing of Stalin and Mao, Kim Il-sung struck the south. An intense artillery barrage opened hostilities, providing a protective umbrella under which 100,000 North Korean troops crossed the 38th parallel. Almost immediately, the South Korean army found itself engaged in a fighting retreat, unable to stem the communist tide. Despite the warning signs in the months prior, the world was left stunned by the invasion, and within hours of the initial assault, the United Nations convened an emergency meeting. Conspicuous by its absence at the meeting was the Soviet Union, who were boycotting the UN for allowing the Chinese nationalists in Taiwan to continue occupying China's seat within the organization, despite mainland China now being under Mao's communists. Despite Atchison's speech implying the contrary, US President Truman was adamant that South Korea should not be allowed to fall. He warned that to do so was akin to the appeasement of Hitler's expansion during the 1930s, and that in order to prevent the communists from striking out from their borders elsewhere around the globe, it must be shown that the free world would retaliate. Within 48 hours, the UN had voted to pass Resolution 83, calling upon member nations to provide military forces to expel the North Koreans. But in reality, this was authorization for the US to primarily involve itself in the conflict without appearing to directly threaten a Soviet client. Australia, Britain, Canada, and numerous others also all began mobilizing their armed forces. But in the meantime, the KPA continued to advance southwards at a rapid pace. And the day after the resolution was passed, they captured the South Korean capital of Seoul, forcing Rhee to relocate his government further south to Pusan. As July arrived, so too did the initial UN forces, command of which was given to the famed U.S. General Douglas MacArthur. 
admired by many for his tactical skill and aggressive nature, despised by many others as a fame-hungry egotist who bordered on being a megalomaniac. MacArthur was regarded as a household name that inspired confidence in the American public and beyond that the situation in Korea could be reversed. U.S. Navy carrier planes opened the air war on July 3rd, while the first American ground unit to enter combat was Task Force Smith, assembled from elements of the American occupation forces in Japan. Having dug in on a hill north of Osan, which afforded them a grandstand view of the surrounding area, at 07.30 hours, on the morning of July 5th, they spotted advanced elements of the KPA approaching them, including a number of T-34s. At 4,000 yards range, the Americans opened up with their howitzers and learned that the T-34's reputation for toughness was deserved as a number of shells simply ricocheted off the tank's sloping armor. After two and a half hours of fighting, the Americans had destroyed two T-34s and damage to others, but it had cost them nearly their entire stock of anti-tank ammunition. Worse still, North Korean reinforcements arrived and T-34s overran the howitzer's position leaving the U.S. infantry to begin a fighting retreat. By the end of the day, 60 Americans lay dead, 21 wounded, and 83 had been captured. While MacArthur was criticized for sending the task force in without adequate weaponry, in the coming weeks, more U.N. soldiers began to filter in while Truman began to reorganize American industry to support the war, although on a much smaller scale than World War II. Much of the equipment being fielded by both sides was of the Second World War vintage, particularly in the air, where U.S. commanders were cautious about deploying some of their newer, more advanced jet aircraft in case they crashed and fell into the hands of the North Koreans, who would no doubt then give them to their Soviet allies to learn their secrets. On the ground, the Sherman tank was still the predominant armored fighting vehicle of the U.S. and Canadian forces, although in their improved M4A3E8 version, although newer tanks were soon thrown into the fray, after the United States, Britain supplied the greatest number of troops, and these served alongside members of the British Commonwealth Occupation Force, who, like the initial American units, were transferred from Japan, and whose members hailed from Australia, Canada, India, and New Zealand. Between August and November, their numbers swelled greatly, as they reinforced dwindling South Korean-held territory around Busan, 
while the Royal Navy and Royal Australian Navy both provided aircraft carriers to provide air support. Yet, despite the influx of UN troops, the North Koreans continued to close the gap around Ri's remaining forces. Even American air power was seemingly failing to halt their advance. During the early engagements, the U.S. Army became increasingly frustrated by the poor level of cooperation they were receiving from the U.S. Air Force compared to what they had received in World War II. Between the end of that conflict and the start of the fighting in Korea, the U.S. Air Force gained its independence from the Army. Now, the Army found itself cut out of many briefings for the air campaign against the KPA and was frustrated by the lack of cohesive, close air support. And this was not just the opinion of officers on the ground. British World War II Spitfire ace Johnny Johnson undertook a tour flying Martin B-26 Marauders with the USAF and even he remarked that cooperation between the services was poor in those crucial early days. USAF effectiveness was even further hindered by poor intelligence. In an effort to disrupt the flow of supplies to the KPA, for example, hundreds of missions were flown against major roads and highways but the KPA were adept at choosing alternative routes, which USAF leaders failed to recognize. One thing that the USAF and the pilots of the US Navy did achieve very quickly, however, was air superiority. As the highly experienced American fighter pilots cleared the skies of the North Korean Yak-9 piston engine fighters within weeks, by mid-September, the KPA had encircled Ri and the UN troops into an area of just some 5,000 square miles around Pusan. However, North Korean success had been painful. Between June 25th and early August alone, the North Koreans suffered some 58,000 casualties more than half of its initial invasion force. Worse still, frequent intense combat had withered down its air and armored units, with not even the vaunted T-34 being able to continue taking such punishment. MacArthur found himself confronted with a dilemma Logically, it made sense to continue pouring in troops to reinforce the perimeter around Pusan, making it impossible for the depleted North Koreans to capture, while at the same time air power could continue severing the KPA's supply lines, forcing the North Koreans to begin withdrawing. The problem was that this tactic would take time, and cost huge numbers of lives and equipment. He therefore decided to gamble on an amphibious operation behind the North Korean front line, attacking them from their rear 
in conjunction with an offensive out of Busan. MacArthur was adept at planning and conducting such operations, having led U.S. forces during the island-hopping campaign across the Pacific against Japan. If any one man could pull this off, it was him. Dubbed Operation Chromite, MacArthur assembled a force of some 75,000 American, British, Canadian and South Korean troops, which would land at Incheon, some 150 miles from the Pusan perimeter. Such a large buildup did not go unnoticed by the Chinese, who warned Kim Il-sung of MacArthur's intention. But there was little the North Korean leader could do, except push for victory at Pusan before the landing took place. Incheon was hardly ideal for a landing, laying at the end of a narrow channel ten miles long. The invasion force would have to traverse, where the fear was the North Koreans could bottleneck them, destroying them with mines and artillery. The rocky terrain also favored the defenders, but MacArthur was adamant that this was where the invasion would take place. In the days prior to the operation commencing, UN warships and aircraft laid waste to defensible positions around Incheon, while napalm was used to clear forests, which could be used for cover by KPA forces. On September 15th, the landing began. Despite offering stiff resistance, including conducting relatively ineffective airstrikes against American and British warships. By September 19th, MacArthur's invasion force was firmly embedded and moving out. Capitalizing on their progress, UN forces inside the Pusan perimeter also launched their offensive. Tired, hungry, low on ammunition and demoralized, the North Koreans were soon retreating, faster than they had advanced southwards. Ten days after the Incheon landing began, Seoul was liberated as the North Korean retreat became a rout, with UN troops then reaching the 38th parallel and thus beginning an invasion of North Korea. With almost no tanks or aircraft remaining, Kim Il-sung found himself with the prospect of Korea being unified by the destruction of his communist north. By late October, the UN were on the verge of reaching the Yalu River and the border with China itself. He had only one card left to play, and that was to turn to his northern neighbors for help. The prospect of U.S. troops approaching the People's Republic of China greatly alarmed Mao Zedong. As he viewed the United States, who continued to support the nationalists in Taiwan, as his nation's biggest threat, Mao felt somewhat reassured by Stalin's promise in February 1950 that if China was invaded by the U.S., 
that Soviet troops would come to his aid. However, regarding the deteriorating situation in Korea for the communists, Stalin was still less than enthusiastic about sending Soviet troops, fearing it would kickstart the atomic Third World War. As a compromise, therefore, he promised that if Mao sent his own forces in to support Kim Il-sung, he would provide material and technical assistance in order to help Mao's troops address the technological disparity between Mao's forces and the UN. War on this scale was the last thing Mao needed in late 1950. Despite the victory of his Communist Party in the fight for the mainland, he was still having to contend with pro-nationalist groups conducting sabotage in support of the government in Taiwan, who were themselves preparing for the next stage of the ongoing war of political ideology. U.S. victory in North Korea, he feared, might fuel counter-revolutionary sentiment in China and strengthen the nationalist position in the region. His economy had also been left in tatters, but given how seriously he and his government viewed the threat from the U.S., Mao felt he had no choice but to agree to Stalin's terms. The task of commanding the Chinese troops in Korea was given to General Peng Duhuai, a highly experienced officer. But his force, the Chinese People Volunteer Army, or PVA, despite being strong in number, lacked many heavy weapons which would be needed to face off against UN armored units. Nevertheless, the introduction of the Chinese on October 25th saw a major reversal of fortunes in the war for a second time. The communists were once again in pursuit of the UN and South Korean forces as they now began their retreat south, back towards the 38th parallel. In the meantime, US and UN air forces continued their campaign against North Korea in the hope of slowing the communist advance but they were about to get a rude shock. On November 1st, 1950, a flight of North American F-51D Mustangs, the famed long-range World War II fighter, found themselves set upon by an advanced new jet fighter with swept wings. This was the introduction of the Mikoyan Gurevich MiG-15 jet fighter, part of Stalin's technical support to China. At the time, both the U.S. and U.N. Air Forces were flying a mix of wartime piston-engine fighters, like the Mustang, and the straight-wing first-generation jet fighters, like the Lockheed F-80 Shooting Star and the Grumman F-9F Panther. Benefiting from captured Nazi German research, and ironically, British jet technology gifted as a token of friendship to the Soviet Union, the swept wing MiG 15 easily outclassed these aircraft 
and threatened to wrestle away control of the air. What shocked the UN pilots more than anything was how well the MiG-15s were flown by the North Koreans and Chinese, which led to the correct assumption that they were in fact fighting the Soviets themselves. Stalin had sent some of his most experienced pilots to train his communist allies and engage UN air power whenever it ventured over communist-held territory. However, they were under strict instructions never to fly over UN-held territory for the fear of them being captured and revealing that Soviets were indeed fighting in the war in some capacity, despite Stalin's reservations. American bomber crews, again flying World War II vintage aircraft, such as the Boeing B-29 Superfortress, would be savaged by this new fighter, which cut them down with its exceptionally heavy armament that included a punishing 37mm cannon. This forced the USAF to reluctantly deploy its own swept-wing fighter to counter the MiG-15, the recently delivered North American F-86A Sabre, and the coming battles between the two types would ascend into near-legendary status in the annals of aviation history while at the same time making the MiG a household name, representing communist air power in the United States for decades to follow. MacArthur had been incensed by the Chinese intervention and the reversal of UN fortunes, and so planned a new offensive aimed at crushing the PVA and achieving victory within the final two months of 1950. However, the PVA's commander, General Peng Dehuai, had anticipated this move and had already worked up a counteroffensive. On November 6, 1950, the PVA withdrew north of the Chosin Reservoir, a man-made lake whose name actually derived from the captured Japanese army maps of the region, hoping to lure in the U.S. Marines to the south. MacArthur ordered the USMC's 10th Corps to attack west of the reservoir in order to cut off communist supply lines in the area. Unaware that the PVA had managed to sneak their 9th Army into the area to ambush the Americans, on November 24th, MacArthur's plan was put into action, which became known as the Home by Christmas Offensive. The next day, both sides clashed bitterly along the banks of the Chongchon River when the PVA's 13th Army achieved total surprise against the U.S. 8th Army. Two days later, on November 27th, the 9th Army attacked the U.S. Marines near the reservoir, which was now frozen over, and the area blanketed by snow during the typically heavy North Korean winter. The U.S. Marines, along with elements of both the U.S. and South Korean armies, 
as well as the British Royal Marines 41 Independent Commando, numbered 30,000 men in total. But they were soon encircled by 120,000 communist troops. For 17 days, the 9th Army tried to destroy the UN troops, who were kept alive thanks largely to airdrops of supplies. But the UN troops never broke, and were eventually able to break out of their encirclement and undertake a fighting retreat to the port of Hangnam. The UN troops fighting there soon adopted the name, the Chosen Few, and the battle has become firmly embedded in the history of the USMC as a demonstration of the service's true grit in the face of the enemy. Yet despite examples of such tenacity on the part of UN forces, the sheer volume of Chinese flowing south acted like a tsunami on the strategic map of the Korean Peninsula. Such was their size. Chinese troops often engaged in human wave assaults, during which many UN tank crews found themselves having to rotate their turrets to brush off swarms of Chinese clamoring on their hulls, often armed with little more than a single hand grenade. Such was the short supply of adequate anti-armor weapons for the PVA. Fighting at Chosin and along the Chongchon River had cost MacArthur 18,000 and 11,000 troops respectively. MacArthur's offensive was clearly no longer possible, and the UN was in retreat once more, being beaten back to the 38th parallel. MacArthur was forced to cable his superiors in Washington with the words, we face an entirely new war. In terms of gains, at the start of 1951, the six-month-old Korean War was in stalemate, but the speed at which the PVA had turned back the US and UN sent Chinese confidence of achieving a total victory soaring. Thus, rather than sue for peace, having secured North Korea, the Chinese instead followed MacArthur's force across the 38th. And on January 4th, Seoul once again fell to the communists, as did Incheon the next day, before their forces began to run out of steam a week later, being ground to a crawl by a stiff UN resistance and superior air power. Then, on January 25th, the U.S. 8th Army counterattacked the Chinese western flank and began pushing back towards the east. Beyond the battlefield, attempts to negotiate a ceasefire failed, and on February 1st, the UN passed Resolution 498, openly branding the People's Republic of China as the aggressor in the ongoing war. At the same time, MacArthur was making inroads to Truman about the use of atom bombs in a last-ditch effort to save South Korea. Truman, 
being the only president to authorize the use of atomic weapons in combat, MacArthur thought he would be receptive to the idea. However, this proved not to be the case. Truman had examined possible atomic options in Korea, but most of his key allies in the war, most notably Britain, was vehemently opposed to the idea, leading him to shelve them. Despite having nuclear-armed bombers based in Guam in preparation, MacArthur also examined the idea of using radioactive waste to create an impassable barrier along the 38th parallel. Explaining this idea to author Bob Considine in 1964, he said, It was my plan as our amphibious forces moved south to spread behind us. From the Sea of Japan to the Yellow Sea, a belt of radioactive cobalt. It could have been spread from wagons, carts, trucks, and planes. It is not an expensive material. It has an active life of between 60 and 120 years. For at least 60 years, there could be no land invasion of Korea from the north. The enemy could not have marched across that radiated collar I proposed to put across Korea's neck. As the battle lines ebbed and flown, on February 10th, Incheon was retaken by UN forces. But on the 11th, the Chinese launched an assault to the west, which forced UN troops back to the city of Wanju resulting in the Battle of Chipyongni, beginning on February 13th. Once again, UN troops, this time comprising of the U.S. 23rd Infantry Regiment and a French contingent, were overrun by superior numbers of Chinese forces, bent on their destruction. But heavy air and artillery strikes proved the deciding factor and resulted in around 2,000 PVA dead for just 51 UN troops. The battle represented the high watermark for the Chinese invasion of South Korea, and in the months that would follow, the fight for the peninsula would descend into a bloody slog between the two sides. While UN air power smashed North Korea's infrastructure supporting the conflict, While communist forces had been stopped and Seoul liberated once again on March 17th, the risk of South Korea's collapse greatly diminished by April 1951. But both Truman and MacArthur were increasingly at loggerheads with one another on how to continue the war. MacArthur wanted to take a much more aggressive stance against the communists but Truman was unwilling to unleash MacArthur. Frustrated, the famed general began openly criticizing Truman's administration and even his own superiors, something which flew in the face of the American practice of keeping the military and politics as separate as possible. He was especially critical of the restriction of bombing to North Korea 
having specified targets inside China, he would have wanted to expand the air campaign to include. Thus, Truman felt he had no choice but to relieve MacArthur of his command on April 11, 1951. The decision was met by criticism at home, by a largely adoring public, but an inquiry into the move confirmed the president had such powers. And over time, as information about MacArthur's conduct came out, public opinion became more divided. He was replaced by Lieutenant General Matthew Ridgway, fresh from his recent offensive against the PVA, which had seen the 8th Army strike back across the 38th. Within weeks, the first test of the new UN commander came, when vastly outnumbered UN forces found themselves having to stand in the way of yet another Chinese advance on Seoul, as part of their spring offensive at the battles of Kapyong and Imjin River. Two British Commonwealth battalions, the 2nd Battalion of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry Regiment, and the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment, successfully rebuffed an entire Chinese division at Kapyong, while 4,000 men of the British 29th Brigade succeeded in delaying nearly 30,000 troops of the PVA 63rd Army at the Imjin River. Although sustaining heavy casualties in the progress, as spring gave way to summer, the fluid nature that had defined the war thus far ground down significantly. Both sides found themselves unable to break the brutal stalemate, save for during smaller, relatively minor skirmishes, which they were unable to capitalize on elsewhere. Given this position, both sides agreed to begin peace talks in July 1951, but notions of a ceasefire were rejected. Thus, as envoys from both sides agreed to meet in Kaesong, North Korea, to attempt to reach a negotiated settlement, U.S. and U.N. forces prepared for the autumn offensive which they hoped would add weight to the UN negotiating team. Beginning August 31st, the offensive led by the 8th Army, now under the command of General James Van Fleet, with 1st Corps in the West and 10th Corps in the Central Eastern Sector, both comprising five UN divisions attacking North, hoping to take enough North Korean territory so as to force the communists to start seeking a peaceful solution beneficial to Rhee's government. In the First Corps sector, the South Korean 1st Division and the British Commonwealth Division made notable advances beyond the Imjin Valley, while other U.S. and South Korean divisions advanced past Chor Wan, but then stalled in heavy fighting. Not wanting a repeat of the reversals of the previous year, Kim Il-sung had issued orders that his remaining armies were to stand their ground at all costs and that anyone who retreated would be executed for treason. 
the 10th Corps, meanwhile, found themselves fighting some of the better equipped and more experienced Chinese units. And in the mountainous terrain, the U.S. fighting men would bestow names upon their designated arenas that would go down in legend. Bloody Ridge, the Punch Bowl, and of course, Heartbreak Ridge. Despite dislodging the communist lines for several miles at one point, threatening North Korea's capital city, Pyongyang, the offensive failed to gain any real traction that could be translated to the peace table, which, since October, had been moved to the village of Panmunjombi for security reasons. On the contrary, the Chinese and North Koreans viewed their defense as successful, despite taking over 100,000 casualties, compared to 60,000 among UN troops. As winter brought an end to major operations, the negotiations turned to the issue of prisoners of war. Unfortunately, these talks produced a great deal of bad blood between the negotiators. Both sides had large numbers of troops who had gone missing in action, presumed to have been captured. But as they exchanged names of those they had in custody, it quickly became clear that the discrepancies were enormous. South Korea, for example, was trying to locate some 88,000 missing troops. But the North Koreans produced just 7,142 names, leading to accusations of murder and starvation in North Korean POW camps. Poor bookkeeping on the part of the South Koreans and the UN also produced highly inflated claims of how many Chinese and North Korean POWs they had in their custody, only for these to then be corrected. But this also led to North Korean suspicion that their troops were being killed whilst in captivity. As talks for prisoner exchanges stalled, the North Koreans, who now desperately needed every soldier they could get their hands on, sent agents to be captured and then infiltrate the POW camps, where they would organize the prisoners to stir up trouble. The idea being to make their captors actually want to give them back. This plan worked almost too well, as very soon, beginning on December 1951, full revolts broke out at several camps which saw pitched battles take place between the prisoners and their UN guards. These revolts would continue well into 1952 and would be put down using tanks and gas against mostly unarmed prisoners, which provided the communists with a propaganda coup. Away from the front line, U.S. troops were also still contending with a communist insurgency in the South, fueled by members of the KPA, who elected to remain behind as the U.N. pushed their main army back, and the heavy-handed tactics often employed by Rhee's army and security forces in clamping down on them, 
saw numerous civilians caught in the crossfire, unintentionally or not. In February 1951, South Korean troops of the 11th Division massacred 705 and 719 civilians. During the Sanchyong Hamyang and Gochang massacres, respectively, those killed were branded communist sympathizers and included children and the elderly. Such killings bred resentment for Ri's government and aided communist recruitment. Nineteen fifty two was to prove a crucial year for the future of the Korean Peninsula. In the U.S., it was an election year, and the war in Korea was a major topic in the heated exchanges between the incumbent Democratic Party and the Republicans. The Republicans, who would eventually put forth World War II hero Dwight D. Eisenhower as their candidate, attacked Truman and his Democrats for their poor handling of the war and blaming them for allowing communist spies to infiltrate the United States, which had put the Western position in jeopardy, evidence for which was often sketchy at best. In South Korea, President Rhee also faced criticism from political factions positioned against him. In 1950, he won little more than a quarter of the seats among the legislature, but knew he had much wider support amongst the people. Therefore, he moved to have the Constitution amended to allow for the people to decide who the president should be, and planned an election for the summer, believing this would afford him greater control over the government. While political campaigning began in both countries, and negotiations continued at Panmunjombi. On the battlefield, it was business as usual. In the air, sabers were clearly winning the day. Improved versions, coupled with superior tactics, meant that in a one-on-one -on -one fight, the sabers often bested the MiGs. It also helped that Stalin was beginning to tighten the reins on how many MiG-15s he was actually sending, compared to the US which sent greater numbers of sabers. And he stopped Soviet pilots from going into combat. As control of the air was wrestled from the communists, 1952 would see an expansion of the bombing campaign. Previously, U.S. and U.N. aircraft prioritized attacks on North Korean cities and military installations, echoing the successful Allied air campaigns of World War II, which left many North Korean cities reduced to ash and rubble, inspiring memories of Dresden or Hiroshima. Now, however, the bombing would include power plants and dams along the Yalu River, seriously disrupting everyday life throughout North Korea and caused widespread flooding. Eventually, even dams supporting irrigation systems for crops were targeted, 
causing not just massive disruption to Kim Il-sung's regime, but also widespread suffering for the North Korean people. It was during the Korean War that a new aircraft came to maturity as a tool for war. The helicopter had its brief debut during World War II, but was basically akin to a flying motorcycle in terms of usage. Now, by 1950, helicopters had grown in both performance and complexity. And while many commanders on the ground still had their misgivings, they were slowly carving out their niche within the military framework, providing logistic support, casualty evacuation, and even on some occasions providing limited firepower. Probably the most iconic helicopter of the Korean War was the Bell H-13 Su, made famous by its inclusion in the opening credits of the hit TV series MASH, which lampooned the experience of a group of U.S. Army doctors and nurses during the conflict. Resembling something of an insect, the helicopter was originally used in the observation role, helping to keep tabs on enemy movements. Particularly important during the early, more fluid stages of the war, before it began adopting various other roles, including carrying wounded troops on externally mounted stretchers. But while the H-13 represented the first generation of helicopters, already U.S. forces were receiving early examples of an aircraft that would prove the true usefulness of the new aircraft type the Sikorsky H-19 Chickasaw set the standard for what military helicopters could do when the U.S. Marines rushed several examples to Korea in September 1951. Immediately they began flying supplies to encircle troops on the ground in the so-called punch bowl, the name given to the Haiyan Basin. The Marines also used this type to insert troops onto remote hilltop positions without having to battle their way through dense forestry or entrenched enemy forces to do so, as well as evacuate them if their position looked set to be overrun, something that couldn't be done before with conventional fixed-wing aircraft without a large, flat space for landing and taking off. The H-19 was so successful in Korea that even Stalin took note of it and ordered that his own engineers copy the helicopter in concept, but on a larger scale for Soviet needs. The result was the Mil Mi-14, and this aircraft became the mainstay of the Soviet Army's helicopter fleet in the 1950s. The irony, of course, was that the Sikorsky Company, which was at this time one of the world leaders in helicopter design, was founded by Russian-born Igor Sikorsky after he fled from his homeland 
in the wake of the revolution that created the Soviet Union. Back on the ground, the battle lines remained doggedly still throughout 1952, despite a series of brutal and bloody engagements, almost typifying the stalemate of the ongoing conflict was the Battle for Hill Erie, which took place between March 21st and July 18th, near Chorwon, on the North Korean side of the old border. Here, U.S. and Filipino troops defended, lost, and recaptured the hill several times over the course of three months of bitter fighting with the PVA, before the UN troops secured final victory. Chinese losses during the course of the battle were appalling. UN intelligence estimated they had suffered in the region of 1,631 dead, compared to just 33 UN troops, as UN air and artillery support caused heavy damage. By mid-1952, not even Chairman Mao could ignore such loss of life amongst his own people, fighting the U.S. and the U.N. And General Peng Duhuai thus undertook a series of journeys from the front to Beijing throughout 1952 to brief him on the ongoing problems for his army. Chief among them was the supply issue. His troops simply weren't receiving the tools for waging a successful campaign, much of which was being intercepted by UN fighter bombers. Many PVA troops were throwing themselves at UN tanks, armed with little more than a single grenade or even a pistol. If they were lucky, they might have been able to pick up a rifle from a fallen comrade or even one captured from their enemy. But even then, bullets were getting in short supply. Added to this was the growing problem of food rations. Many Chinese and North Korean soldiers were collapsing and even dying from hunger and dehydration. The infrastructure to provide them with what they needed, all but devastated by intense bombing, Yet, despite all this, the Chinese pushed on, refusing to agree to the offers coming from the off and on again negotiations with the UN throughout 1952. Meanwhile, on August 5, 1952, Syngman Rhee won a landslide victory in the election, achieving 74.6% of the vote. It was not without controversy, Ri having used intimidation to get South Korean lawmakers to allow the election in the first place. Now, with a much firmer grip on the government, he was able to focus more attention on the war effort. But concerns were growing within his inner circle that the U.S.-led forces were beginning to favor an armistice with Kim Il-sung instead of pushing for an outright defeat of the North. Himself opposed to this, Rhee tried to settle such fears 
by promising that the U.S. people would never allow any of their soldiers to, as he put it, die for a tie. Meanwhile in the U.S., on November 4, 1952, 20 years of democratic rule on Capitol Hill came to an end with the victory of Dwight D. Eisenhower over his democratic rival Adelaide Stevenson II. Compared with Truman's policies, Eisenhower wanted to take a much tougher stance to end the war in Korea as part of his intention to stop communism, something he argued Truman had failed to do. Crucially, having visited Korea for himself and seen firsthand the stalemate that held in place throughout the year, Eisenhower proved far more receptive to the idea of using nuclear weapons if the Chinese refused to agree to an armistice. As 1953 dawned, the situation in Korea looked as though it could reach a terrible new height. Having won the election, Eisenhower, who was popularly known as Ike, formally took office as the 34th U.S. President on January 20th, 1953. And now he had to give the voters something positive about the war in Korea, as he had promised. He had hoped the question of the exchange of prisoners during the negotiation might produce results, but quickly became as frustrated as his predecessor when these stalled. As the situation on the ground continued to stagnate, despite the awesome firepower being hurled at the communists, he also became increasingly concerned about the financial cost of continuing the war. However, given his policy regarding taking a hard line against communism, it was impossible for him to contemplate abandoning South Korea to save a few bucks. On February 11, 1953, Eisenhower met with his National Security Council and expressed his frustration, stating categorically that the war could not be allowed to continue the way it had been. Given that the atom bomb was pretty much the only thing left in the U.S. arsenal that hadn't been deployed, many in the U.S. government took this as a sign that he was prepared to give the order and began drawing up plans with the U.S. Air Force for its employment in the conflict. This included possible strikes against China itself. However, Eisenhower was acutely aware that the use of the bomb in Korea was going to be politically costly, as even amongst the most anti-communists in his party, there were those opposed to it, given the possible wider ramifications with the Soviet Union, who were now also supporting a growing nuclear arsenal. Therefore, he planned to undertake something of a PR campaign to remove the taboo of using such weapons, highlighting the financial benefits as opposed to the cost of continuing a wholly conventional war. 
He did, however, still hope it would never come to him having to give the order. His best outcome was that the effort to ready nuclear weapons would be enough to convince China he was serious, and this would force them to agree to a ceasefire at least. Before this plan could fully come into play, Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin died on March 5, 1953. Overnight, the strategic picture changed as the Soviets became more concerned with their own political situation in the vacuum left by Stalin and the situation in Europe with NATO. Support for China continued, but by this point relationships between Beijing and Moscow were beginning to sour. Frustrated by the lack of direct Soviet involvement and a sense of the growing disinterest in the war from Moscow, Chinese leaders were beginning to feel betrayed by their Soviet ally, given how much blood they had spilled in Korea for the cause of fighting Western imperialism. Added on to this was that the support China and North Korea were receiving was not free, and both parties were expected to pay for it all after the war. Hardly the notion of socialist power in Beijing's eyes. Nevertheless, with peace negotiations still ongoing, the Chinese collected as much of their supplies as they could muster and attempted one more offensive in the summer of 1953, hoping to break the deadlock. On June 10th, 30,000 Chinese troops struck two South Korean and one U.S. division on a 13-kilometer or 8-mile front, and this was followed on July 13th by 80,000 Chinese soldiers hitting the Kamsong sector, with the brunt of their attack falling on four South Korean divisions. In both cases, the Chinese failed to capitalize on any advances they made into the UN lines, with overwhelming US firepower being brought to bear upon them. Chinese casualties in this, their final offensive, numbered over 25,000 killed, with three times as many wounded. The Soviet Union had by July 1953 pushed for an end to the fighting. Brokered by India, an armistice proposal was put forward that would see the line dividing North and South Korea effectively return to the 38th parallel. With a devastated North Korea on one side and a reluctant Soviet Union on the other for allies, China felt it had no choice but to enter into serious negotiations surrounding the Indian proposal. Finally, on July 27th, the KPA, PVA, and the UN signed an armistice, declaring an end to the fighting. Although crucially for the future, no peace treaty formally ending the war was agreed upon until April 27th, 2018. 
It remains debated whether Eisenhower made a direct or indirect threat to China regarding atomic weapons. And whether this was an instrumental factor or not, in Beijing agreeing to the armistice. However, Mao Zedong, and indeed the wider world, knew that even back in 1950, U.S. policymakers and military leaders were already discussing its use when the war seemed to be turning against them. Furthermore, despite the armistice, Eisenhower was acutely aware that the situation remained tense, and so he continued to make plans to use atom bombs on North Korea and China if the conflict renewed. While technically no one lost the war, it is also true that nothing was gained from it. Despite the rebuffing of the communist aggressors being portrayed as a victory for the West, it seemed everyone came out of the war losing something. Even Eisenhower, who was forced to accept communist containment on the Korean peninsula, despite his campaign promise to push back communism across the globe. In Seoul, Rhee felt betrayed by the U.S., who negotiated the armistice without his involvement and left him and his people having to continue living on a divided Korean peninsula, where both sides were now drenched in each other's blood. Under such circumstances, hatred and suspicion flourished, and with it, the chances of reconciliation diminished. By contrast to the state of his armed forces in 1950, after the war and with significant U.S. aid, the South Korean armed forces grew to become one of the premier military powers in Asia and would be aided in defending the demilitarized zone established between the North and South in the armistice by a strong contingent of U.S. forces well into the 21st century. Across the border, things were very different. North Korea was completely devastated by U.S. and U.N. bombing. Much of its infrastructure was obliterated, its armed forces in tatters, and over 1.5 million people dead. North Korea was left having to rely on China for aid, to help it in reconstruction as it became something of a hermit kingdom in the region, largely cut off from its neighbors. This severing of ties did have one plus side for Kim Il-sung and his successors, however, in that without any outside influence claiming the contrary, he was able to brainwash millions of his people in the decades that followed, that actually North Korea had effectively won the war, by threatening to destroy the United States. Even today, many North Koreans believe that the United States and its allies only exist because Kim Il-sung allowed them to. China, meanwhile, ended the war feeling betrayed by the Soviet Union, 
and this led to a frosting of relations between the two, which ultimately culminated in the Sino-Soviet split of 1961, resulting in both communist powers facing off against each other, as well as against the West, further heightening the tension of the Cold War. This even led to several military clashes between the two, which, along with China possessing their own nuclear weapons after 1964, significantly raised the possibility of nuclear war in Asia. Regarding the number of those killed in the conflict, the Korean War ranks as probably the deadliest single conflict associated with the struggle between Western democracy and Eastern communism during the Cold War. While exact figures from the Chinese and North Korean sides are often incomplete or deliberately fabricated, the war is known to have cost in the region of three million dead, more than half of whom were civilians. Both sides were accused of war crimes and atrocities, some being propaganda and some not. The conflict showed that the Cold War would not remain a game of brinkmanship, and that fighting would take place. It therefore set the pattern that would follow for the fighting between Washington and Moscow in numerous proxy wars around the globe whereby one side would provide their troops, while the other would provide training and armaments for their respective sides. Korea remained a stark warning for the superpowers throughout the 1950s and into the 1960s. However, despite its significance, it has since been labeled by historians as the Forgotten War for it became overshadowed by said proxy wars that followed, most notably the conflict in Vietnam and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. With no victory to be found and tensions on the Korean peninsula still high, perhaps more so with North Korea having its own nuclear weapons in the 21st century, the Korean War appears to be an unpleasant topic for the wider public, who don't want to be reminded of a war that seemed to achieve nothing, save for bloodshed. <laughs>